Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome to the Will Within Podcast. This is your home for shared stories of hope, perseverance, will, and inspiration. Join us today as we share another story that brings to life the underlying beat of our lives. Consider us your virtual friends. Let's get inspired. Today, a conversation I have with a woman by the name of Melissa Hire. She is the executive director of the Lindell Recovery Network. That is a service that provides Christian services to recovering alcoholics and other addiction issues. Very excited to talk to her about that. It's a wonderful service. I also want to talk to her about the Hope Report itself, which she is the co-host of. They talk about testimonies and other issues. So sit back and be inspired. Welcome, Melissa. I'm so excited to have you here. I'd love to talk to you about your faith-based journey and also growing up and also about the Lindell Network, which you're working with now as the yeah, executive awesome. director. Yes, ma'am. Well, yeah. thank you, Regina. I'm blessed to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm thanking you again. <laughs> this is wonderful. <laughs> so let's so hear about your faith base. Let's hear about your journey as a kid. Yeah, let's get into it. Well, Going back, uh, I'm from northern Minnesota. I live in the Twin Cities area now, but I grew up north of Duluth, so pretty much in the woods, out in the country. Um, I was pretty sheltered, and my parents were working class people. My dad later developed a bad drinking problem, which I'll talk about as we go along, but you know, I had a loving family, so my earlier childhood memories were good, probably up until the age of maybe eight or nine in there. And we did go to church. We went to a Presbyterian church and my grandmother was very influential in my life. She, but more in kind of a maybe slightly condemning way. She was always telling us, you know, we needed to be in church on Sunday. Basically, if you didn't go to church, God was mad at you was kind of her, her take on things, but she did instill a lot in me about Jesus. And she always played hymns on the piano there was never a time in my life where I didn't know about God or about Jesus because my parents, you know, they told us to say our prayers at night and all of that, but it was more of sort of a ritual, I guess you would say. I never felt the presence of the Holy Spirit in my home or had any talk with anybody 
about the Holy Spirit until mm-hmm. I got to be much older. So Can most I of my questions. Yeah, faith, go ahead. What faith journey was it? What, what, what well, my parents, my parents belong to a Presbyterian church, okay. so they they're all Scandinavian up there. They're they're kind okay. of reserved, all Stoic, right. Lutheran, Presbyterian, mainline. Gotcha. You know? Okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So those were my roots, and looking back, I'm grateful for that because I did have this little small country church I went to, and we went to vacation Bible school every summer and things like that. And one thing I'll also mention is I had a lady in my life who was very important. Uh, Her name was Marge, and she and her husband didn't have any children. He had a daughter from a previous marriage, but she couldn't have children. And when I was really young, she started babysitting me around, you know, toddler age, and she was full of the Holy Spirit. And she was really the one who has been a rock in my life all these years up until the present day, where she told me about Jesus, you know, the need to publicly accept Jesus and make him your Lord and Savior, not just like, oh, I believe in God type of thing. So that was planted in me with her at an early age. And I spent a lot of time with with her family. We would go on camping trips and go uh, fishing together. And she brought me to her church for vacation Bible school. So when I was nine, they did an altar call there and they didn't do these sorts of things at my Presbyterian church. But when I was nine, I was at Marge's church and they called everybody up, you know, who wants to accept Jesus into their heart? And I'm sure a lot of people have heard it, you know, had that experience when they were a kid of, of accepting Christ. And I did it, although I didn't really know what I was doing at the time, I don't think. I just sort of felt like everybody's doing this, mm-hmm. so I better do mm-hmm. it too, you know? Yep. And I got on my knees and I said the prayer and I accepted Jesus. But when I went home, I felt funny about it. I kind of felt like I had done something wrong or I should have asked permission first. You know, I had this guilt complex because my parents were very reserved and private about their faith. They even thought Marge was a little strange for how, you know, they thought she was a holy roller. And and they were they were just kind of that way about people who were full of the spirit or who were born again. They Mm -hmm. they didn't talk well of that. So it was confusing for me. So when I got home, I told my mom, but she sort of dismissed it. She was like, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's she kind of changed the subject. So that was a pivotal thing because I sort of squashed this new, um, you know, relationship with Jesus. And instead, I got into, you know, I started to have a lot of anxiety, which might seem strange around the time I accepted Christ. But my dad's drinking was escalating and it was causing more chaos in our home. And I just began to feel more and more unsettled and anxious. And I started using food and television basically to cope with my feelings. And I was a latchkey kid. So I would stay home, you know, I'd get off the bus and I would be by myself. And Marge was not really in my life anymore at that time because I was old enough kind of to be alone, my parents had determined. And I had an older brother, but he was six years older. So there's a big age gap and he would often be with his friends or doing other things. So it it was a time where I started to be alone quite a bit. And I started to develop this wound of abandonment, I think. And I started to look for things outside of myself to medicate. And when I was nine, that became food, junk food and TV. So those became my best friends. And that kind of just went up until I was in junior high and my dad, along with that, my dad's drinking was always a constant. There were times when it was not as bad, you know, where he seemed to function better, where he would hold a job and things like that. Mm, but, it, more like you a know, social drinker. well, sort of, I mean, it would look like that, but then there'd be the inevitable, oh, he's drunk or he, you know, he got a DUI and um, my mom okay. was real codependent. So she would try to 
you know, manage him and make the family look good to the outside. So I felt really lost in that. I started to feel like I was invisible because everything always gravitated around my dad and trying to cover up for what he was doing. So that was a stressor and I wanted to hide it because I didn't want my friends to know and I didn't want people to think my dad was a drunk, you know. So so going into I always felt different from everybody else. Like they had normal families and I didn't. Although I will say looking back, it was by no means as bad as some other stories I hear. You know, I wasn't abused. I, maybe you could say there was emotional abuse. I mean, just because I felt disconnected from my parents, I didn't feel I had a bond, you know, or that I could go to them and they'd be there for me. So that was more of the problem than there was no physical or sexual abuse or anything like that. But anyway, um, so I got into junior high and I gained a lot of weight. I And I was always an average sized child until I got into medicating with food. And it started to become a problem where, where I was being teased and kids were making fun of me. And I was, you know, never picked for the team. I was just the kid that was was kind of alone. Uh, and again, it wasn't bullied severely. It was just more of a subtle thing Still where ostracized. Yeah. You know, yes, you know. I did. I didn't feel I fit in with anybody. I was just alone in the world, it felt like. And this was a wound the enemy had, you know, a stronghold of the enemy from way back was this abandonment feeling and rejection and feeling fear of being rejected. So when I was 14, I decided to go on a diet. And it's just like a switch flipped in my brain. And I'm like, if I could get skinny, then all my problems would be solved. And so this pivoted into me becoming obsessed with losing weight. Mm. So I started to restrict. I started to fast. I started to, you know, eat a very small amount of food each day. And my mom, I think she thought this was a fad at first. She was like, oh, you know, you need to whatever. I I better skip up here because I'm getting... (laughs) too deep in the weeds but take your time <laughs> say what you want to say okay well I I lost a lot of weight in a short amount of time and it resulted in people suddenly noticing me and giving me compliments and saying oh wow you lost all this weight I was suddenly you know noticed and I developed this belief that my my body was tied to acceptance and validation from other people you know and it's probably an old thing that happens to men and women, I mean, probably mostly women, but a lot of women feel like so much about their physical appearance. Well, you gotta remember, we grew up in the time of Twiggy, or right after Twiggy. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah, right, so. yes, so being normal, I wasn't, like, hugely obese, but I was slightly overweight, you know, than my peers, so it made me stand out, and so once I lost weight, I became sort of popular, I guess, and, and along that time came alcohol, so it went fast. I lost all this weight. I I've met a boy when I was 15 who was older than me, got into a relationship with him that my parents didn't really agree with, but they didn't really get in the way of it either. And then he and his friends drank. So I was introduced to alcohol at that time. And I, I always thought alcohol had this mystique. I couldn't wait for the time that I could drink. I never thought I'm going to be like my dad. I just thought I'd be you know, fun and have a good time. And I wouldn't do the stuff my dad did. So I started drinking with my new boyfriend and his buddies, and it was basically binge drinking every weekend. And and I would black out. I would, I mean, I have lots of stories I won't get into, but I had really serious consequences from the beginning with blackouts, drunk driving, um, waking up in my vomit. I mean, things that were, were significant and serious, but I would think, oh, well, you know, I just messed up. I I went overboard. I, I continue to try to make a way to keep alcohol in my life. So in high school, I did pretty well. I tried to separate like 
like Paul talks about in Romans, I, I hated what I did, but I kept doing it. I, you know, on Monday, I'd say, I'm not going to do this anymore. It was and the then, known evil. Yes, yes. Comfortable with you. Let me ask you yep. a question. Was your brother yeah. um, in that vein as you, in terms of no. drinking, or did he go a different path? He went a different route. right, to a certain extent. It, you know, there is a genetic predisposition, definitely. Uh, you can be predisposed to it. Uh, he went the uh, absolute opposite route. He was very invested in sports, academics, um, friends outside of the family who were positive role models. He, he, you know, he hung out with friends, families who were positive. He did everything right. And, and, you know, I'm sure he dabbled a little bit in alcohol in high school. It was never an issue. It was never, he never got in trouble. He never got disciplined. Mm. He was like the gold star kid. And my parents had him when they were 16 and 17, which is another kind of thing to the story where they had me six years later when they were sort of a little more stable and they stayed married till my dad's death but my brother is a is a stable guy he's he's a good guy so I he was actually concerned about this path I was going on but um while you were drinking sorry to interrupt you I keep no go ahead so while you were finding yourself drinking you now you're 17 18 years old and your faith is kind of going away from you at this point is that correct oh yeah for sure uh, yes, I started to dabble in other things like new age stuff. I started to question. I still, you know, I always had some grounding, but I started to think, oh, maybe there's other ways to God. Maybe, you know, some of my friends were into witchcraft and it was kind of a fad to play around with. And I, you know, I played with Ouija boards when I was a kid. We just do it at slumber parties that people just thought it was a game and playing around with witchcraft and um I got into this dark phase maybe in my junior year and so I dabbled in a lot of things I started to question maybe not question if God is real but start to wrestle maybe more of an agnostic like I don't I don't really know and I, and I had no relationship with Jesus at that point and so I ended up getting married when I was 20 just to speed it up a little I finished high school I did fine I had a serious boyfriend I moved in with a constant in my life was moving from one relationship to the next kind of with to avoid being alone. I moved in with a guy and ended it because he didn't want to get serious. And then I quickly jumped into something else with another guy. And we ended up, you know, I was pushing people for marriage. I wanted to get married. In my mind, I thought I want to get married, start my own family, and then it's going to fix everything in my life. And I did get married at 21, was pregnant. Um, I was pregnant when we got married. I was three months pregnant and we had been engaged for a while, but I, I, looking back, I can see where I was trying to force outside of God's will. I was just hell bent on doing things my way and not waiting on God's timing. And I was forcing this guy into marriage essentially. And he, you know, he showed me lots of reasons why he was uncertain and uneasy and I just kept pushing forward with it well you were trying to fill that void it sounds like that you felt abandonment from when you were a child yes yes I just thought I could change him I thought well he'll get used to it you know what now we're gonna have a baby and he's gonna have to you know I just thought he would come out he'd get with the program you know mm-hmm. and we also moved 600 we decided to move 600 miles away so in a span of a few months we got married moved 600 miles away and then a about five months later, I had our daughter. And, you know, things were deteriorating pretty fast. So I started searching for things to fix it and then decided to move back to our hometown, thinking that was going to fix things, but really it only made things worse. So we were divorced 
we were only married a couple of years and the marriage ended. But I will say that God was very faithful to me during that time, even though I was not in relationship with him and I was essentially forcing my own will. When the marriage ended, I was devastated. I wanted it to work. I tried everything in my power to make him change his mind. And he was like, I'm done. I never really wanted this marriage. I'm out. And so one night after I'd been just crying for like a week straight, I prayed and I hadn't prayed for a long time. And I just, I didn't know what else to do. And I prayed that God would help me accept it. I didn't pray for him to change my ex's mind. I just prayed, help me accept this. And the next morning I woke up and things were different. I, that is one very pivotal memory that I hold on to that I woke up and I felt peace. I felt like I'm not happy, but, but I'm okay with this, you know? And so then I became a single mom with my toddler and we, we were, I was a bartender. I, I always worked jobs that, that pretty much enabled my drinking. I tried to separate my parenting from, from my drinking. You know, we had, a, I had a joint custody arrangement. So I'd try to keep my drinking isolated to when yeah. my daughter went to her dad's, but yeah. it would bleed into it. You know, it totally would. So it was a rough, rough time in my twenties of trying to just struggling and chaos because whenever you're active in your addiction, it just brings a lot of chaos. I always had financial problems. I, you know, I was always just going by the skin of my teeth. One time a repo man came to my job and was going to repossess my car. I could never pay the rent. I'd somehow managed to get by, but it was just chaos. And I was, you know, outside of God's will, it's, it's chaotic. So the next thing that happened that is noteworthy is that because I had continued drinking, I guess I would say binge drinking, blackout drinking. I would not drink every day, but when I would drink, it would be a two or three day event. Mm -hmm. Like when, when my daughter's at her dad's, I would just party it up. And so in 1999, I, I got arrested for DUI. It was in January of the beginning of the year. And I just told myself that was unfortunate. Lots of people get one, you know, you need to be more careful. But then nine months later, I got a second one. And in that incident, I rear-ended someone when I was in a blackout and I fled the scene. And the police came and found me at the convenience store a few blocks away. And I didn't even remember. I, I didn't remember what had happened. I was blacked out and I had come out of the blackout and I was in the store and I thought, oh, well, I'm at the store. You know, I, I didn't remember what had happened until I was approached by these officers who asked me if I'd had an accident and I nodded my head. And anyway, I went to jail that night. And I, in jail, did some soul searching, told myself, you need to stop drinking. And I did. I stopped for a year and a half. But part of me knew I wasn't done yet. And, and during that year and a half, I did go back to church. I, my daughter was about five at that time. We got involved in a non-denominational church. I was water baptized. I, I mean, I fully would go full tilt back into my faith whenever I had a period of sobriety. I was in Bible study. I was like, you know, 110% for God. Mm -hmm. But slowly I started to grow uh, discontented and bitter about the hand I'd been dealt, I guess you could say. And I would Can think, I ask a question? Well, yeah, was, yeah. During this time, were you still a bartender DJ jobs or were you gone on to actually become a reporter? I guess you became a reporter at some point. Yes, and that did happen. Happened? And it actually happened in the period of sobriety, which is funny because, you know, lots of times blessings happen when you're being right. obedient to God, you know? Right, and right. so when, yeah, I stopped, I was still doing the DJ because it was good 
money and cash, uh, the mobile DJing. But I, yeah, I got a job at a TV station and they just hired me as a production assistant. It was a very low paying job and I was kind of doing it as a second job. And so after I had been doing it about a year and a half, they asked me if I had ever, you know, been interested in being on air. And I was trying to finish my degree at this point. And that's a long story in itself, but I went back and Mm -hmm. forth in different majors and withdrawing and going back. So I had changed my major to mass communications and I finished. Don't worry about that, Melissa. I didn't even go to college (laughs) until I was 30. That's right. I got my MBA when I was in my 40s. That's it, you know? That's awesome. That's awesome. I did too. I got my master's on it 10 years ago. But yeah, yeah, it took me a long time just with lots of stops and starts and changing my mind. But I did progress into, um, so I was sober for a year and a half, got the job at the TV station. And that was kind of part of what brought me to drinking back, not to blame it on anybody, but I'd watch people go out after work and I would feel jealous. I would feel left out and discontented and it's not fair and I want to be part of this so I start again the enemy starts telling me well you never really tried to control it you know you never really gave it a a good effort on controlling it You, you I think you could now because you've been away from it for so long all these rationalizations that addicts get about how to make it work, how to bring the chemical back and, mm-hmm. and have it, use it in a way that it won't destroy your life. Yeah, and I've been trying to do that yeah. for a long time. It never worked. But I thought about it for about three months. And then in 2001, I decided to do it. And uh, so I started drinking again, was doing my DJ shows very quickly back into the same old pattern of blacking out, going to events, doing stupid things, and trying to juggle this. Now I'm a reporter, I'm on air, and I'm just terrified that people are going to find out what I'm really like because I'll be doing my news reports during the day and then at night I'm getting blackout drunk at the seediest bar in town you know and so every morning I would think what if somebody saw me I mean I'd wake up full of paranoia and panic oh I would be yep yeah yes and part of it was because my identity was so rooted in this tv thing It, it was like this is defining me people recognizing me and seeing me is defining me. And if I lose this, I I'm not going to exist anymore. And um, so of course, when I started drinking again, I fell away from God, fell away from church because I just couldn't do it. It felt like I can't do both. I can't seek God and drink. You know, it just, it felt morally wrong. So I guess I, you could say I was hiding from God or running from like Jonah. I'm running from God. I, I know he's there. I know he's pursuing me, but I just don't want anything to do with it right now. Mm-hmm. So I'll advance the story a bit. So it's 2001. And even though I'm drinking, I'm continuing to advance in my career. And that gives you a false sense of control too. Like, oh, well, I'm functional, you know, mm-hmm. nobody is ever going to find me out. And, but then things would happen where people would make comments or they'd be like, oh, you were a real mess last night. Or, oh, you don't remember that? Remember what you said? And I wouldn't remember. And I'd be just mortified, but I'd pretend like I did. So in 2002, at the end of the year, my dad started getting really sick again, and he'd been in and out of hospitals his whole life. And he always kind of saw it as a badge of honor, like, oh, I just get blood transfusions and I go home and, and everything's fine. I mean, I don't know why he could never get it that alcohol was going to kill him mm-hmm. or, you know, he just always thought he could beat the system. He'd go to treatment and then he'd stay sober a week afterwards and he'd be drinking again. So this started happening again, where his he was having liver failure. He'd he would swell up, get all of the liver failure symptoms, throwing up blood, bleeding internally. And um, I'd seen this many times throughout high school, him having seizures, him having 
to go to the hospital and get his abdomen drained because it's full of fluid from liver failure, but he'd always make it through. He somehow would always come through, but this time he didn't. He slipped into a bad period of he wouldn't eat or drink or get out of bed. And, and uh, my mom had left for work one day and he called her and said, I need an ambulance. Ambulance came and got him and his liver was failing. And they gave him some Ativan at the hospital because he was combative and that kind of finished his liver off. And he never came out of a medically induced coma and he passed away. And that was December of 2002. And after I went through that, I thought to myself, I'm never going to drink again. I thought, that's it. That's the end. You know, I, I can't do it. This, this is, you know, I had this sense that time was running out for me. And I've heard Mike Lindell say this too. And these one, this is one of the things we connected about is that I didn't know how or when, but I knew for me, it was going to be an accident an overdose or something really stupid that killed me. It was going to be something like an overdose. Cause I had so many times I woke up when I shouldn't have, and I didn't know how many passes God was going to give me, but I knew that my time was running out. And I looked at my dad in his hospital bed and I thought, you can never drink again. But then like a week later, I drank. And just because some guy invited me out for a beer and I just didn't put up any defense, I said, okay. So from my dad's death up until when I quit for good, I had about six relapses. And I was really trying to stop. I wanted to stop. I would stop for a month or two and then something would happen and I would pick it up again. But it was coming to the end. I mean, it, each time it was worse. It was like my drinking had gone off a cliff where I would be, I was just so out of control. I, I had, I used to be able to kind of control it to a degree, but I would, I was just very reckless and doing things I had never done before. So I tried to make July 3rd of 2003 the last time I drank. And I said, this is the last time I'm going to drink. Like I said, I've said that many times. And I was trying really hard. I was white knuckling it. And every time I tried to quit, I didn't like it. I was ticked off. It was unfair. I was grieving the loss of it. So I white knuckled it through 49 days. And then a guy invited me to go to the state fair. Mm-hmm. And uh, we drove three hours to the fair. And on the drive down, I decided I was going to drink. This was August 21st, 2003. We were on the road on I-35 and I thought to myself, I'm going to drink. And he didn't know how bad I was. He didn't know what was going to happen. Because really when I drank, it was like I, I opened up a gaping hole for the devil to step in. This had been happening ever since I was 15. It, it was like this other thing would take over my body, walk for me, talk for me, do things I never would do while sober. It was just this portal for evil. And um, I, so I told him, I, I actually, I told him, I think I'm an alcoholic. He said, no, you're not. You're fine. What are you talking about? Are you nuts? So he sort of in his own way without meaning to enable, like made it okay. Like, you're fine. Have a few beers. I'll watch out for you. Mm-hmm. So we got to the fair and I just started drinking like it was water. I just started like pounding drinks, like, uh, like I was a marathon runner at a water checkpoint. I mean, I just. I I was drinking compulsively and um, I blacked out after about an hour. And the next thing I knew, I woke up and 12 hours had passed and I came to in this motel room. And uh, it's the, it's just the lowest, worst I've ever felt the most morally bankrupt and horrible. 
And the guy is hovering over me and he's like, we got to go. I think your car was towed. And I'm thinking my car, what, what? I couldn't make sense of what had happened because in my mind I had been at the beer garden and it was late afternoon, you know, or early evening. So we took a cab back to the fair where I walked and walked endlessly, uh, not knowing where we were going, what was going on. I just, in my, I was totally wrapped in my own mind. I, it's like, I could have been on Venus. I could have been starting a colony on Venus. I, I was just walking in my head. I was to thinking about my dad and I was talking to God and I hadn't talked to him for a long time. And I just, I just begged him in my mind, please don't ever let me take a drink again. And I didn't know how or what that would mean, or that was just my prayer. Please don't ever let me take a drink again. And that was August 22nd, 2003. And that was the last time I drank. And in that prayer, I didn't really know the enormity of the prayer or what was going to unfold in the coming days, weeks, months. But God answered that prayer because after that, I never had the struggle, the obsession, the this isn't fair, I want to drink, why can't I be like other people? All of that was lifted off me, the, the yoke of addiction. I mean, I don't want it. I, it, has, it, like, it doesn't interest me at all. It was just taken away. So that's what happened as far as my drinking. And you were able to keep that away from your daughter? She didn't visually see any signs of that? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say she saw nothing. I. I would say I did my best to not expose her to it, like to keep it confined to when she wasn't with me, because there were three days of the week she wasn't with me. And I did abuse my privileges with the grandparents where I would be like, oh, I have to work. Can you watch Haley? And, um, you know, I'd be working, but then I'd be drinking all night afterwards or, you know, going, having a house party after. So she has, you know, I've asked her about that. She has a few memories of bottles like cluttering the coffee table and I know the worst part of it was probably when I was hung over I was disengaged I couldn't I wasn't there for her I would just want to sleep I would want to put in a movie and and you know have her just watch a movie so I could sleep and so she was five when I quit for the year and a half and then when I quit for good she was eight so most of her life has been me sober and I'm not going to fool myself into thinking it didn't impact her. I know that it did. But I try, I've try. i tried my best to be open with her about mm-hmm. what I went through so she doesn't um, fall into But she's 26 now. So, well, she, yes. Yeah. So, yep, that's what happened. And God did bless me richly uh, after that. I did meet my husband, um, who I had known in the 90s, but we hadn't seen each other for six years. And our paths crossed again. We reconnected. We were married a year later, and we have two daughters. So that was 2003? Yes. So when did you decide to, you were going to go back, you were going to go to school or back to school? And because you became a counselor, a drug counselor, right? A licensed drug counselor? Yes. it's It's a wonderful thing that you were able to take that adversity and make a positive out of it that that's god's journey for you, you thank know? you thank you yeah i stayed at the station the tv station so i was a news reporter and the weekend anchor i was there until 2005 and then in 2005 our station closed they did a revenue sharing agreement or arrangement where they consolidated two affiliates in that town and so they laid everyone off and at the time, a lot of people were distressed. I was actually really excited because I thought this gives me an opportunity to do something else. And that is when I went back to school for the drug and alcohol counseling. And I got licensed in 2007. 
And I've, I've been licensed ever since. Most of my work has been in treatment centers, intensive outpatient, residential. Uh, and then I started with Mike Lindell in 2018. So I almost consider that. Sorry about that. I actually consider what you said as divine providence. Which it's, part? The, the part where you got laid off and then after all these oh, yes. situations, you decide you're going to become a drug counselor. So yes, it happened it, because of the layoff. You were able to pursue something and God pointed right. you in the direction of helping others. Yes, you're absolutely right. It totally was because they actually paid. They gave us a severance package and then right. they gave us a dislocated. I love work. those. Yeah, it was it was perfect. I was like, wow, this is exactly what what because I, I had wanted to you know move into something else and we had just done a Bible study at church where I was praying about my purpose. And I really felt like that was God's call for me. And I have felt that way all along. However, around 2016, I started to get really disillusioned with, I basically, I've done group counseling. So I've done group counseling every day, sometimes two groups a day for 12 years, every day. Um, So I was doing that for a very long time. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I started to get a little beaten down and I, I was praying like, God, I know you want me to do this work, but I'm struggling. You know, I, I just, I still want to do it, but is there a way I can change it to be more of a work-life balance? And that's when I met Mike Lindell. And, and divine he, intervention again. Yes. Okay. It, even You know, you that. think you're walking around alone and, and God's not walking with you. Do you ever read the footprints poem? It's exactly yes. footprints. Exactly. Every time you feel like you can't go any further, God says, okay, well, here I am. And, and here's the door that's open for you. Yeah. That's amazing. It really is. It's been incredible. It really has. I, he brought it around and, uh, you know, I knew Mike Lindell. I mean, I just knew him as the, my pillow guy, but one day I just started wondering why he wears this cross outside like that. So I started searching Mike Lindell. And of course he's from Minnesota. So everyone here knows him or knows of him. But I started reading all this, these articles about him being a former crack addict. And I thought, wow, I never knew that. And I was telling my husband, did you know Mike Lindell was a crack addict? And I was reading all these things about him. And I just got this thing in my head, like, I don't know, I want to work for him. I was reading about how he treats his employees and how he's amazing. And he hires felons and addicts. And I thought, you know, I really want to work for this company. But I could never find a way in. It just seemed like there wasn't anything that fit my skill set and or something that would be comparable to what salary I'd need and different things like that. Mm-hmm. So I was like, man, I, I don't know how this is going to work. And then, well, anyway, to make, I'll make the short story short, but I decided to just get a part-time job at the pillow store at the mall. And my husband thought this is nuts. You already have a full-time job and you're stressed and you're going to add another job. What's going on? So I said, well, I don't know. I just want to get my foot in the door. I just don't even know where it will lead. So they called me for an interview and it was about a week out. But during the time leading up to the interview, I started to think, this is dumb. You need to cancel this. This is the worst idea ever. What are you thinking? You know, how are you going to do this? But I decided to just show up and follow through with the interview. And I was going to tell the people, you know, I decided I can't, I don't want this job. I can't take it. So I went to the interview, sat down, gave her my resume. And I said, I'm very sorry for wasting your time, but I'm not going to be able to take this position. And she kind of looked at me strangely like, well, why are you here? (laughs) Exactly. And meanwhile, she's listening. Hi, goodbye. Hi. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for wasting my time. But I don't know. It was like a weird thing. I felt like I have to follow through with this, but I don't really know why. So of course, it's the Holy Spirit prompting me like, just go, just show up. 
So she looked at my inner, my resume and said, oh, you're an addiction counselor. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, Mike's starting this thing to help addicts. I don't know anything about it, but you know, I can pass your information along. I know there's a bunch of people in line for those. She made it sound like it's like a total long shot that this could happen for me, but I thought, whatever, you know, I feel good. I followed through. So yeah. And I didn't expect to hear from anybody, but a couple of weeks later I did, I, I got a request to come into the corporate office. And it was the craziest thing when I met Mike for the first time, he just walked in and he, he said, well, Melissa, I'm glad you're here. I think this is a divine appointment. Your name's come up three times in the past week. I, I people keep saying you got to meet this person. And he said, well, I want to hire you. And I said, you do? Do you want to do an interview and ask me anything? It's <laughs> <laughs> so bizarre. I've never been through anything I like love it. The, don't you love those job interviews? You're hired. Yeah. What's your name? Yeah, I know. That's how it was. It's so funny. About a year later, he asked me to explain to him again how exactly I, I got there. You know, he's that's like, how so did that funny. go again? That so funny. <laughs> that's, that's how it that's how it happened. So now we have the Lindell Recovery Network. I could share briefly. So you started about- from the ground floor. I started as a counselor. You know, I think his, his idea was, you know, you can do counseling for my pillow employees. He has 2,500 employees. So for a long time, that's what I was doing. I would do assessments for people, help them get into treatment. I had a a Bible study I did every week. I had some one-on-one appointments with people. And then I'd just do, well, things about the the structure of the network, because it sounds so intriguing about working with different churches throughout the country. Yeah. How do you make that connection? How does that work? Well, a lot of it is Mike's dreams and visions and things have come to him, like the phrase hope match came to him. So he always wanted to have a platform to help addicts or a sort of hub that had all of these different resources, but with the goal to point people to Jesus, that's the goal. But for many, as you know, you kind of have to lead them through the side door because maybe they have no foundation in Christ or they, they don't even think they want him or need him. So we're not trying to come at them that way. We want to lead them in through the side door. So on the landing page of the platform, Mike's got little videos that pop up through the site where he explains everything. He calls himself the tour guide. So he's kind of like, hey, I'm Mike Lindell. You may know me as the MyPillow guy, but I'm also a former crack addict. So one of the things for him is that when he got clean, it was a big part of it was because one of his friends had gotten clean and came and talked to him. Mm-hmm. And he was like, what? He's like, Dick, what? You're, you're sober? What happened? And he was just like floored because he considered Dick his equal. Like they were getting high together. They were doing this crazy lifestyle and he couldn't believe Dick had stepped out of it. And he's like, what are you doing? You know? So that had more of an impact on him than any therapist, book, treatment, you know, all the stuff he and I both did. Like it was helpful to a point, mm-hmm. but it didn't impact him the way somebody like him who had come out of addiction you know, did in that way. And Dick works for the company too. He, he works at one of the factories, but oh. so my wanted- question, yeah, what you were just talking about, is that a portal that he created? I mean, how did he make that, that structure that you were talking about? Just well, you can go to lindellrecoverynetwork.org. Okay. And then when you, you get on the landing page, you'll, you'll see where it says hope match and you can type in it says enter your age and select your addiction from the drop down to find people like you who've been freed from addiction. So you put in your age and you select whatever your drug is, or, you know, we have all various drugs on there, gambling, sex, porn, there's some other behavioral addictions, and it will populate matches for you. 
And on the landing page, it's just people talking about what they didn't like about their addiction. So they're leading from their brokenness. They're, they're connecting through, hey, I've been where you've been. Um, I, I'm kind of speaking your language, but it's not telling the whole story. Like, this is how I was restored. And this is how I met Jesus. Or I went to Teen Challenge or any of that. It's kind of maybe a tease, if you will, of what's inside the site. So people can watch their hope matches. They can, you know, select different drugs and watch different videos. And then at the bottom, there's a sermon. And we change the sermon regularly. It's about usually about 20 to 30 minutes. And the way for people to get access to the site is that they have to watch that sermon. So Mike, it's very important to Mike that people, you know, they don't have to go to church. They don't have to join a church or sign up for all this stuff, but they need to watch one sermon. And usually it's something focused on addiction or breaking strongholds or something that would appeal to a person with an addiction. After they finish the sermon, they're instantly in the site. And when they're inside it, then they can access all the help. And in the help, we have the full transformation videos. So we have longer form videos of the people on the front page, but now they're talking about, this is how I met Jesus. I, you know, maybe it's a treat, Christian treatment program they went to or different things that helped them. But it's a full testimonial. And, and we all 50 states? Or yes. If you have physical people in 50 Well, no, I mean, this is an online platform. But I know it, it is, it, but I mean, it's oh, yeah. connected to some like different churches. Yes. There's a searchable database for churches and treatment centers. So people can enter their um, zip code. We're actually changing the church portal to be by state. So it will be a drop down where people can see That's partner cool. churches. That's a wonderful, and so, wonderful. yeah, they can choose a treatment center we've vetted, which are all Christian, a church with a recovery program or the online help. So in the online help, we have the Operation Restored Warrior course. We have 30 plus biblical counseling manuals. Each one's like 100 pages. And we're working on a content management system, which will be like podcasts, books, all sorts of stuff that, you know, would help people with addictions. I have to tell you, through all the things that Michael has done and has gone through himself, he, you guys sound like you, especially servants of, of our Lord, because you, well, through all the adversities that you guys always continue to endure, you keep coming out on top. There's a, there's a reason for that. God is on your shoulder. I can tell. I can hear. Thank you. So what made you decide to do the next step, which was the hope report which i saw you on which is what i loved that's why i started this podcast because i was after i wrote the book i didn't know what i should be doing and i was praying about it and a person that usually comes to chat with me she said oh i see that you should be doing a podcast now this girl isn't even religious she's not spiritual she's not wow. she said you need to do, I, mean, I have a feeling you need to do a podcast and when she came the following week she was like what's all the stuff i said start a <sighs> podcast that's awesome. So you know what I mean. You just kind of fall into these things. So it's, I've been very blessed to talk to a lot of different people, and I would have never had that opportunity. No, I love that, Regina. That's mm. that's cool. How God does that. Now he's he amazing. He speaks through everybody. He uses everything, even you know unbelievers or whatever. He uses everything to to get us messages, and that's kind of what happened with the podcast because. Mike had been talking, actually, Mike has talked about this. He didn't know about podcasts, I don't think. But for years, he's been saying, I want to show, I want to start some kind of show that's just good news. And I call it the Hope Report. He said that like back when I was hired and I didn't know how that would work. I didn't think I'd be part of it. 
And I also, you know, often would feel bad that, that my TV career is over. Basically I'd see, you know, they're here in the twin cities, people I worked with, they, you know, they were the people who moved up to different markets. I didn't choose that route. I got married and had a couple of kids. And often I'd feel, you know, the pull, like I, I miss that. And then I would say, oh, you're too old. That ship has sailed. That's over for you. And suddenly God's been wow. bringing it around, like with the war wow, room. That's awesome. I, it is. I saw it's, you first on the war room. That's when I heard about the Hope Report and that's when I went to it. Oh, thanks. that's great. I'm you know, it's a miracle. It really is how people come together and can influence other people and bring them along on the journeys. What, one real quick question. You also do Katie Magazine and Charisma yeah. Media. Can you tell me, because you got your hands on a lot of different things. So I want people to get as much exposure to you as possible. So tell me a little bit about those two. Yes, sure. So it's just blossomed over the past year or so where these media opportunities have come up. And I think Mike had said, why didn't you ever tell me you did all this new stuff? I said, I don't know. It just never came up. So he's, he started asking me to, you know, do you know how to write a press release? I'm like, of course. So I've written some press releases, some speeches and things like that. And then Charisma Media does a lot with Mike. And they said, hey, we want to talk to the director of your recovery network and do an interview with her. And so while we were doing the interview, they said, hey, would you want to write a column for our magazine? I said, yeah, you know, that'd be great. So yeah, I have, it's called Katie Christian. And um I just do a, a weekly column. Sometimes they don't run weekly. It depends on how they can fit things in. But I've written probably half a dozen columns for them. And then with the Hope Report, that was a prayer thing between uh, Paul Lavelle, who created the Operation Restored Warrior course, had said to Mike, he's like, Mike, I feel like the Lord is telling me you need to start a podcast. And he said, and I think Melissa would be great. And then he had Jason Perry, who is a veteran and was connected to Paul. Is like, I think the two of them would make a great team. And he brought that to Mike. And for a while, Mike was busy. He wasn't able to really do anything with it. And then finally he said, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and now he's super, super excited about it because he's wanted to put out that message mm-hmm. of hope and want, mm-hmm. you know, showcase people's testimonies of yep. that the Lord does amazing things. I got a kick out of uh, when I first listened, uh, the connection I also had was Jason from Boston. And yeah. And you are too? Yeah. So Is that where you are hey. now? Huh? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I mean, there was I kept just your name kept coming up and and these all connections to Boston and everything. I said I gotta get her. I want to hear a story. So before that's... we end today, I want to ask you one more question. Tell me what your mantra is. My mantra. Well, that is an interesting question. Well, I would have to say, you know, just off the top of my head, that it is, and that I like that question. I didn't expect that. It would probably have to be, I trust you, Lord, uh, because whenever the world is swirling around me, I can get snagged by things in my environment, my circumstances, with people, with with my perceptions of things. And I have to keep coming back to that simple phrase, I trust you, Jesus, because I know that he is arranging things. And I know, you know, it's if I trust his perfect will, everything is going to work out fine. So mm-hmm. I have to, mm-hmm. I have to put my eyes back on him, especially when I feel myself spinning out into my surroundings or something that snagged me. I trust you, Lord, is what I come back to. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Let's talk about real quickly how people can get in contact with you or learn more about the Lindell Recovery Network and all your contact one. stuff. 
Yeah, so we you please check out the platform, um, lindellrecoverynetwork.org. And again, all you have to do to get access to all the free resources, Mike has made it all free. We had had some thoughts about charging, you know, monthly fees and things. And we, he decided he just wanted to do a pay, for, pay it forward model where it's free for people. So lindellrecoverynetwork.org, watch the featured message of hope at the bottom and you're in, you can access everything. Also, if you want to subscribe to the Hope Report, we're on YouTube, Facebook, frankspeech.com. We'd certainly appreciate uh, you to like and subscribe to us. We have a Facebook page. Lindell Recovery Network has a Facebook page and Twitter and Instagram. I'm trying to think of what I'm forgetting. And Telegram and... Yes, and you can go to Hope Report Show for our website. You can definitely message us through there. If anyone wants to be a guest or do a testimony, we would love that. We are a pretty much a testimony focused show. We are going to have some episodes where we do teachings and things, but we are essentially a testimony driven show. So if you have a testimony of anything the Lord has freed you from, it doesn't have to be addiction. It can be any stronghold or anything. Just your basically what you're doing here, Regina. Um, telling a faith story and how you came to the Lord, hopereportshow.com. You can email us through the website and we would love to get you on. Well, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for doing this. And I I wish you all God's blessings. Amen. Thank you, Regina. Thank you for what you're doing. Thanks to Melissa for talking to us. I found her story extremely intriguing and I love the concept of the Lindell Foundation. He does such wonderful work. So next time, we're going to be talking to a gentleman by the name of Craig Syracuse, and he is the executive director of the Opera House at Emmaus Center. He is also a host of Walk in Faith. He's done numerous positions in entertainment, and he's going to tell us about his journey and what he's working on. We're also going to be talking to a woman by the name of Conchita Sarno. She is a senior fellow, and she deals with human trafficking, and she wrote the book called Trafficking, the Story of Jeffrey Epstein. So until next time, my Wilworth and family, be blessed.